September 7th, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. I, Paul, really don't need to write to you Corinthians about this gift for the Christians in Jerusalem, for I know how eager you are to help, and I have been boasting to our friends in Macedonia that you Christians in Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of them to begin helping. But I am sending these brothers just to be sure that you really are ready, as I told them you would be, with your money all collected. I don't want it to turn out that I was wrong in my boasting about you. I would be humiliated, and so would you, if some Macedonian Christians came with me, only to find that you still weren't ready after all I had told them. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given under pressure. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each make up your own mind as to how much you should give. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves the person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the Scriptures say, Godly people give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will never be forgotten. For God is the one who gives seed to the farmer, and then bread to eat. In the same way, He will give you many opportunities to do good, and He will produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched, so that you can give even more generously. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will break out in thanksgiving to God. So two good things will happen. The needs of the Christians in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanksgiving to God. You will be glorifying God through your generous gifts, for your generosity to them will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ and they will pray for you with deep affection because of the wonderful grace of God shown through you. Thank God for His Son, a gift too wonderful for words. Are you saved? Verse 9 will tell you if you are. You see that? Having been made perfect... He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. So, I'll ask the question a different way. Not are you saved, but are you obeying Jesus? Or are you living in disobedience from Him? If you are living in disobedience, you do not have warrant to believe that you have salvation. Now, obedience in the book of Hebrews is first and foremost obedience to the command to trust the promises of God. It is very interesting that in the first, I believe it is, nine chapters of this book, there's not one practical, ethical command. 
But there are many commands to believe, to hope, to trust, to hold fast your confession, to draw near to God, to rest in his promises. So the first thing we must hear when he says, obey, is will you obey this morning the command, trust me, have I not enough dignity? Have I not enough eternity? Have I not enough purity that when I lay down my life that you might have forgiveness and acceptance forever? You can trust me. That's the command to be obeyed first. Every other kind of obedience flows from that obedience. And so the bottom line question as we leave is, are you willing this morning, right now, to look at the promises of sin Got them in your mind? Got some sins planned for this week? The only, the only reason anybody is sinning is because sin makes promises. Look at the promises of sin and say to them, you are a liar. And then look at the promises of God and say, you are true. And embrace these. Believe them, trust them, bank on them. Hold fast to them, as Hebrews says, and you will know that you have eternal salvation. Hey, it's James Whiting here at Braille House. I'm here with everyone's favorite barber, Jason Massey, who's completing today from his 13 months in the refuge. Jason, what is the number one way that you got through this refuge? Jesus um, showing his love through all the brothers before me and uh, just being able to pass it along to the, the guys uh, behind me. Okay. What is the number one advice you'd give guys coming through the ministry right now? Step outside of yourself, have a willingness to be taught, and have an open mind. Okay. Thank you. So, what is the most memorable moment you've had since you've been in the ministry? Uh, I had quite a few. Um, I would say the most memorable was all the the winter time and third phase and just all the work in and the hard work outside the cold and Thompson's Concrete and just persevering through that and coming home to a hot meal and just fellowshipping, cutting hair and you know, stuff like that. So, I know you're not from Ohio. What are your plans after the refuge? Um, I'm actually going to stick around Columbus, um, stay connected, um, do the 614 project, um, do a good job painting cars, um, should be locked in pretty soon with that. Where you said you're staying here in Columbus, you're going to do the 614 project and all. Are you planning on sticking around Veritas or do you have other plans? Yeah, I plan on sticking around with Veritas, uh, living with Phil Neff, you guys know him, uh, staying connected with that. Become a member of Veritas Church, serve any way I can, and just uh, try to help serve in the refuge in any possible way. Come to an encounter, you know, and get some haircuts, meet some new guys, and stay connected. So you hear that first. He's encounters. He's coming with Clippers. Who were the guys that helped you get through the refuge? Shoot, uh, I think you right off the top of my head would be um, Jason Herb, Alex Campbell, Antoine Fudge, Steve-O, Tim Lane, uh, among the other guys that have left who still impacted on me. Um, Sean Johnson, John Lucas, Harry Krause, uh, all you guys around me now in fourth phase. It's been a big blessing ever since you came into second phase. What are you going to miss the most about being in the refuge? Probably going to miss a lot of the fellowship that you, know, you don't get all the time. You know, the dinner time meals and stuff, and being able to cook, cook for people, and you know, just uh, 
some of the fellowship that you don't get when you're out in the real world all the time. You know, sometimes we get aggravated with each other, but in all reality, it's what keeps us, keeps us strong. It's the brotherhood. So that's one reason why I stay connected as close as possible to some of the guys I've gotten close with. Alright, I want to thank you for your time in the Refuge Ministries. You've been a help to me and for many others. And we all love you, man. Thank you. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 19. Now this is the fourth of the penitential psalms. It came out of David's sin with Bathsheba and his futile attempt to cover it up. If any chapter in the Bible reveals the high cost of sinning, it's this one. Sin hurts the sinner. David's whole being was affected by his sin. His eyes, his mind, ears, his heart, his spirit and mouth he lost fellowship with God and the joy of the Lord. Are the pleasures of sin worth paying this great price? No. And sin hurts others. Sin can bring tragic consequences to the lives of others, especially one's family. David's sin led to Uriah's death, a loyal soldier. Also led to Bathsheba's baby dying. David's lovely daughter Tamar was violated by her own brother Amnon, uh, who was then killed by Absalom, who in turn was slain by Joab. Is a fleeting moment of sinful pleasure worth a lifetime of sorrow? Again, no. And sin hurts God. We hurt ourselves and others when we sin. But primarily, our sins are against God. Sin makes us dirty. Sin is rebellion against God's holy law. If you want to know how much sin hurts God, go to Calvary and see a son dying for the sins of the world. God is love, and our selfish sins break his heart. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 19. For the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. For I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. 
but you desire honesty from the heart. So you can teach me to be wise in my inmost being. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me again the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to sinners, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that I may praise you. You would not be pleased with sacrifices, or I would bring them. If I brought you a burnt offering, you would not accept it. The sacrifice you want is a broken spirit, a broken and repentant heart, O God, you will not despise. Look with favor on Zion and help her rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with worthy sacrifices and with our whole burnt offerings, and bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25. Keep away from angry, short-tempered people, or you will learn to be like them and endanger your soul.